you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 3. And our text this morning will be Galatians 3, verse 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. But before we read the text, let me just say I'm so thankful for the wonderful um, gifts that God has given Crosspoint uh, in the form of musicians, in the form of our media crew that works the sound and, the, and, and, uh, and puts everything together for the services. I'm so thankful for them. Uh, Andrew is out. Uh, today on vacation he and his family and then uh, in a couple of weeks it'll be his last week with us but uh, and Casey also is out there on they're on vacation in Alaska and so they're enjoying cooler weather than we are uh, in Alaska but he'll be back uh, soon as well Uh, but I'm so thankful that Wes uh, is able to lead uh, with the guitar and to um, and the ladies that are up here are able to also lead us musically and so God has blessed us as a congregation I'm so thankful for that And I know you are too. So tell them how much you appreciate them. Well, I also meant like just personally tell them how much you appreciate them. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we approach your word this morning, it is a joy and a delight and a privilege to openly be able to proclaim your word and to sit under the preaching and teaching of your word. But at times it can also be a heavy burden because when we come face to face with your word, we are reading your divine revelation to us. And Lord, we come to it as imperfect sinners. And so Lord, there's always ways for us to be challenged to grow. But also this morning, Lord, we pray that you would Permit us to have joy and take delight in the wonderful truth and counsel of your word. I pray, Father, that you would incite our hearts to yearn for and to long for this type of relationship that your word is showing us this morning so that we would see this great delight in being able to come to you and say, Abba, Father. So, Lord, as we approach your word this morning, Open our eyes to see the truth of your word. Open our minds to comprehend the truth of your word, our hearts to love the truth of your word. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, the title of the message is From Slaves to Sons, From Slaves to Sons. And in Galatians 3, 26 through 4, 7, this is what Paul is describing for the church, the reality for God's people because of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to to follow along as I begin reading in chapter 3, verse 26. It's on page 974 in the Bibles that are located in the chair backs right in front of you. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, 
when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Well, this is truly good news for all who name the name of Christ by faith this morning. I want to answer three questions as we go through, uh, through the, the text this morning. First, what does it mean to become sons of God? You see it on your outline there. Secondly, how do we become sons of God? And then thirdly, what is the good news about being sons of God. Well, first, what does it mean to become sons of God? Paul uses son of God to refer to Jesus two times so far in Galatians, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. But here, in chapter 3, verse 26, he extends the language to speak of all Christians. Now, he is not talking about the universal fatherhood of God. He is speaking directly to the church, to those who are Christians. To be a son of God is to be, then, in a privileged relationship with God. And so first, what does it mean to become sons of God? It first means that we are part of God's family. We are part of God's family. So when Paul speaks of all Christians as sons of God, he means because of Christ's finished work on the cross, those who by faith have come to him have entered a new status and this new relationship with God. So he sees us as sons, God that is, sees us as sons, not according to our own work, but according to Christ's righteousness. This means that we belong and are are God's children. It means we have a security. We have the ear of our heavenly father. Now, Paul intentionally says sons and not children here. He says sons because he's talking to the Galatians. And in the Greek world, sons were the only ones who were eligible for an inheritance. And so Paul isn't discounting the role of women. He's not discounting the reality that women are part of the church and part of God's family, that they are children of God. But he's making a more profound statement, as we'll see in verse 28. Look down to verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's a profound point that Paul's making, and that is before God, we are equal with God. Or not equal with God. We are equal before God, right? Before God, we are all equal. As the saying goes, we are all equal. The the ground is level there at the foot of the cross. So the relationship, he goes on in verse 27 to talk about this relationship between faith and baptism. And the relationship between faith and baptism has been hotly debated amongst Protestant evangelicals, between Catholics and, and the Orthodox Church. Questions like, should it be administered to infants or after a person confesses Christ as Lord? What role does does it play in the Christian life? Is baptism to be a sacramental thing? That is, a means of God's grace coming to us? Or is it an ordinance, a, a practice that demonstrates faith? Some would say, based on verse 27, where Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ 
have put on Christ, some would say that it means being sons of God is contingent upon baptism. But in Paul's day, there there were many Hellenistic mystery religions, and, and of those in the Roman world, some practiced baptism and new converts. In fact, they even said that when a person was baptized into this mystery religion, that they became born again. And the sacraments of mystery religions worked like magic to assure the person who was being baptized or was converted to assure them that they would have immortality. And so over time, a similar type of sacramental thought was actually attributed to Christian ordinances. So the Christian ordinances would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the things that that the Lord ordained, that Jesus ordained, that his church was to follow. And so this, this led theologians like Ignatius of Antioch to describe the Lord's Supper as the medicine of immortality. And it led theologians like Augustine to consign that all unbaptized babies who died in infancy would go to limbo. But really the whole burden of Paul's letter to the Galatians seems to counter this notion, this idea. Paul's been arguing that salvation is received through faith in Christ alone, apart from the works of law, specifically apart from the work of circumcision or the requirement of circumcision. So what what do we have here in verse 27? Is Paul changing his tune? If you're to be right with God, then he's saying you must believe in Jesus and undergo water baptism, forget about circumcision, now it's water baptism? No, not at all. Instead, what Paul is pointing to, he's pointing, he's pointing to baptism as the defining moment in a person's faith journey. The defining moment where a person publicly declares their acceptance of Christ's justifying work on the cross and by faith become unified with Christ. That's what Paul is speaking of about baptism. And so the ordinance of baptism for Paul It meant to participate with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. So baptism doesn't mediate grace. It's not how grace comes to us. No, baptism is an outward sign. It outwardly celebrates what Christ has done inwardly in the believer's life for all the community of faith to see and to be a witness to. It is itself a testimony to the world. It's a proclamation. But it's not necessary for salvation. And so the question becomes, if it's not necessary for salvation or receiving the Holy Spirit, why then are we baptized? And the most basic answer to this question is because Jesus Christ ordained it and he commanded it. Timothy George says in his commentary, just as Jesus identified with our wretched sinful condition in his own baptism thereby proclaiming in advance his death, his burial, and his resurrection, so too we are identified with Christ by our baptism, declaring the salvation that Christ has wrought within. So being sons of God means being part of God's family, but being sons of God also means we we take on a new identity. We take on a new identity. You see it there in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul speaks of baptism metaphorically using this term, this phrase, putting on Christ. It means to become like Christ. But it's more than just asking the question, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Right? It's more than that. My son walks around and says, what would Jesse do? 
It's the idea of taking off the old garment and then putting on the new garment. This analogy would be familiar because in the Roman world, a youth that was nearing adolescence would actually go through a ceremony where he would remove the crimson bordered garment from childhood and would put on what was called the toga virilis to mark his entrance into full manhood. It was actually a ceremony in the Roman world. So if you, if you go to Scotland or anywhere that there's a lot of sheep, sooner or later you'll see a lamb running around a field with what looks like an extra fleece on its back. There are little holes in the fleece, usually four for the, the four legs, and there's a spot for the head to come through. And as you see the lamb running, if you see a lamb running around like that, it usually means that the mother has died. Without the protection and nourishment of a mother, an orphan lamb will also die. And so if you, if you try to introduce an orphan lamb to another lamb, the new mother would butt the, the lamb away because she doesn't recognize its sin and she knows the lamb is not one of her own. But thankfully, most flocks are large enough that they have a ewe who recently lost a lamb in the birthing process. And so what the, what the shepherd would then do is take that dead lamb skin it, and use the coat for the skin on top of the orphaned lamb. And then when the mother lamb sniffs the orphan lamb and smells her own lamb, instead of butting it away, she accepts it as her own. See, likewise, when we, when we put on Christ, we've become acceptable to God by being clothed with Christ. We've taken upon ourselves the Son's very identity. For Paul, putting on Christ was far greater. It was of far greater significance than any empty ritual relegated to, maybe I'll get around to it one day. You see, for the early church, putting on Christ as symbolized through baptism, it it was this frontier between two worlds. It was one of, of renunciation and then one of proclamation. It was one of throwing things back, throwing it away, pushing it behind, and then proclaiming to the world this, this new life, this radical act of obedience. It was taking on a new identity as part of the community of faith. So baptism is a celebration of our new identity. Being sons of God, being part of, of God's family, it means we've taken on a new identity. We've been welcomed into the family of God and we've become new creations, as Paul says, in other places in Scripture. But to be sons of God also means that it is right to be children of God, not just male, but male and female together to be children of God in that sense. To be sons of God also means we're equal before God because we're unified in Christ. We're equal before God because we are unified in Christ. In verse 28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These three categories that he uses in verse 28, the ethnic slash racial category, the socioeconomic status, slave or free, the gender category, male and female, they're distinct markers of our humanity. And, and Paul isn't trying to redirect the culture of his day. He, he's making a profound theological point. 
that having become one with God as his sons, Christians now belong to each other in such a way that these distinctions that formerly divided them no longer have any significance. And so what's true of of humanity in Paul's day was true of humanity in Adam and Eve's day. It remains true of humanity in our modern day. And that is that because of these distinctions of nation, wealth, and gender, these are because of sin, these distinctions, rather, of nation, wealth, and gender, they've been distorted. They've led to a a corrupting and a, a devaluing of God's image bearers. And in the context of God's family, by faith in Jesus, we've become sons and daughters of God. And now, having, having put on Christ through baptism into Christ, the former distinctions that, that so characteristically were distorted in the world, they've lost their significance now in a new people, as new creations, in the family of God. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2. Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Christ has made us into a new humanity, a new race, if you will. And so in this sense, Christians are unified as as one people across the globe so that as we look at each other, we see brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's, it's it's on this basis that we as a people of God work to fight against the hatred of racism, the hatred of socioeconomic oppression. We work to fight against sexism. And in Christ, we recover the co-laborer intention of Adam and Eve in the garden. The point being, whatever barriers might have existed to a relationship with God before Christ, they no longer exist within the church. Being sons of God also means that we're heirs by promise of faith. We're heirs of promise by faith. Verse 29, there's a a decisive difference between the family of God and the world. Between those who know God as Father through faith in Jesus and those who remain in bondage under the curse of the law. Being an heir is not about earning an inheritance. It's about receiving an inheritance. If you belong to Christ, then you're an heir of the promise of salvation. So being sons of God then, offers us an incredible privilege. We are heirs of promise by faith. Being sons of God means we're part of God's family. It means we take on a new identity. It means that we're equal before God because we're unified in Christ. And it means that we're heirs of promise by faith. You know, this, this reality of becoming sons of God and and what it means for the believer, it means that our whole lives are different. It means the gospel has changed us and transformed us. It means that we have been been given a new identity and been brought into a family that we otherwise could not have been part of. It means that God has done this incredible, gracious work to include us into his family. Church, that's good news. That's why the gospel is such good news. Well, to answer the second question, how do we become sons of God? In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, we see this. First, I have to come to a place where I recognize my condition under the law. 
Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of looking at that pretty heavily, so we won't spend a lot of time here. But under the law, Paul says in verses 1 and 2, men were like an heir during their childhood. And though a young boy might be an heir of a great estate, he has no rights while he's a child. Although it's already his by promise, he's still a child and is no better than a slave. That's what Scripture says. Guardians and trustees actually direct him about and order him around. They even discipline him. They keep him under restraint because he has no liberty. And and it says that he'll remain in this bondage until the date set by his father in verse 2. And in verse 3, Paul says, here's the, the parallel. Paul says, it's the same with us. He says, before faith in Christ, we were like children enslaved to what he calls the elementary principles of the world or, or the spiritual powers of the world. And Paul's already discussed at length this idea of bondage, of being under the curse of the law, which Christ freed us from becoming by becoming the curse for us, right? Chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from under the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so Christ actually, in our redemption, when he redeemed us, he took the curse that we deserve. And so Paul extends the argument to help us see yet another side of the spiritual powers of darkness at work in the world around us. In other places in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he says, in their case, speaking of the world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the spiritual warfare that's ongoing at the cosmic level. And so to be enslaved to the elementary principles, the spiritual powers of darkness in the world, describes all who have not come to faith in Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, outside of Christ, we think that we can make it to God on our own. But what we fail to realize is that we can never attain a righteousness on our own that will make us acceptable to God. If we could, then Christ wouldn't have had to come and die on the cross to redeem us of our sin, to take upon himself the curse of the law. You see, if we take the three categories from verse 28 in chapter 3, we don't have to search very hard to find examples of corruption and the elementary principles of the world enslaving people. We can see the the exploitation of the vulnerable, sex trafficking. I mean, look at the the hashtag MeToo movement, right? We see daily examples, I mean daily examples, of of how people who have amassed wealth and power have, have been ruined morally. Most notably, we can even look to the political arena and see the double standard of people's lives when the the veil is pulled back and all of a sudden you see behind the curtain where they've been advocating for one thing but been living something completely different. Our society is confused over sexual identity. With an ever-increasing struggle, they're wrestling with the morality of Judeo-Christian values over against secularist values because they're competing and clashing heads. Racism in in Western society is still alive and well. 
There's rampant confusion about gender, about moral standards, about the sanctity of life, all of which result from a view like 2 Corinthians 4.4, man being in bondage to the God of this world. In fact, this is the shape of culture and society around us, and it's not surprising. But the fact that this shape has infiltrated the church, that's what's staggering. Because the church, ecclesia, the Greek word there, it literally means the called out ones. You see, the church, because of the the gospel of Christ, because of becoming part of the family of God, because of having a new identity, putting on Christ, the church is to be radically different from the world. We're not to look like the world, to take upon the world. Instead, we are to be sharing the hope and the light of the gospel in the world. So we, we, we must recognize our condition. How do we become sons of God? We must recognize our condition under the law that we're hopeless, that we're blinded, that we're corrupt. And by only by God's grace can we see the remedy to our condition. Only by God's grace. And so we become sons of God by, secondly, placing faith in Christ for our redemption and receiving adoption. We become sons of God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ for our redemption and receiving adoption. Look in verses 4 and 5. Paul expresses the objective facts of our salvation by alluding back to what he's already covered in chapter 3. In God's perfect timing, when history was ripe, God sent his son, the Messiah, born into the world in the same way that we're born into the world, born through a woman, and then born under the law. He does this to secure our redemption. Redemption is seen fully, and not only has God created us as image bearers, but he has also paid to redeem us. He has created us, and then he bought us back. The illustration we saw a few weeks ago was of the slave on the slave block being auctioned off in the agora in the market, and the redemption price that would be paid the highest redemption price paid was the person that that got to take the slave home. And so what we see here is this picture of Christ paying for our redemption, purchasing us out of slavery, out of bondage to sin. And so the illustration shifts to one of enslavement in verses 5 through 7. We were enslaved under the law without hope and without the ability to be set free and yet the legal case that he presents is one where the master of the house actually adopts the slave as a son you see this is the redemption power of christ is what jim was speaking about earlier with lauren jesus through his perfect obedience to the law transfers to those who believe in him the full rights of sonship This means not only does Christ satisfy, remove the curse from us, he also gives us the very blessings that he deserved. You see, the the language of adoption, it conveys God's sovereign gift. Our familiarity with adoption today helps us to understand this incredible truth. Why does a parent adopt a child? Is it because the child has earned God's favor? The answer is no. It's because the couple looks upon the child and says, I love you. 
I love you. I choose you to be my son. I choose you to be my daughter. This is the picture of God's sovereign grace to us as his children. I love the hymn of Isaac Watts, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. It captures Paul's sentiment here. I'll read a few stanzas. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Here every mercy of our God with soft compassion rolls. Here peace and pardon bought with blood. With blood is food for dying souls. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make the wretched choice and rather starve than come? And the last stanza, the way the hymn ends is incredible. We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice in heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. What about you this morning? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been redeemed through Jesus Christ and freed from bondage? of sin, freed from the bondage of trying to earn God's favor? Christian, what about you this morning? Are are you living like a slave, fearful of God? Are you living like a son, assured of your father's love? How do we become sons of God, recognize our condition without Christ, and place our faith in Christ for redemption and receive Adoption as sons. We become sons of God through adoption, through faith in Christ. The final question I want us to consider this morning is what is the good news about being sons of God? We see what it means to be a son of God. We see how we become sons of God. What is the good news about being sons of God? In verses 6 and 7 we see it. If verses 4 and 5 tell us the objective facts about being sons of God, that is, objectively, here's what Christ has done to make you sons of God. Verses 6 and 7 then tell us the subjective experience of what it's like to be sons of God. If verses 4 and 5 we see the purpose of the Son on display, in verses 6 and 7 we see the purpose of the Holy Spirit on display. You see, the good news about our adoption as sons of God is that we're given all the privileges that go along with sonship. First, get this, we're invited to know God intimately. We're invited to know God intimately. Look at verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. The most basic indication of our adoption as sons is that we're invited to address God with the family language of Abba, Father. It's an Aramaic expression that Jesus himself used in Mark chapter 14 to refer, to speak, to pray, rather, to God the Father. Abba is a word that a child would use to speak to their dad, their daddy. It would be akin to us saying, Papa, Daddy, Dad. Not in an irreverent way, but in a familial way. 
in a comfortable way, in a way of, of security, of coming to God in close and personal intimacy. You see, in verse 6, God, it says God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, meaning that God has caused the Holy Spirit to reside within the believer. And then, for the purpose of crying out, Abba, Father, the Spirit actually leads us to God in prayer. This means Christians experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit know the reality and the nearness of God in prayer. And just as a young child cries out to her daddy and never doubts the strength and security of her daddy's arm, so too Christians can call out to God, can cry out to God, Abba, Father, we have the ability to come to God anytime crying out, Abba. We have the assurance that God hears us and is for us. And we have welcomed access to the very heart of God. The God of creation has made a way for us to enter into his presence and commune with him intimately, to know him, to come to him in prayer and to call him Father, Dad, because he's given us the Holy Spirit. Christian, do you realize that God never leaves you and he doesn't forsake you? You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. Do you know God intimately? How's your prayer life, believer? You see, the good news about being sons of God is that we're invited to know God intimately. What a privilege. The second privilege of sonship is that we're given the inheritance of salvation. Look at verse 7. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Our status has been changed. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer enslaved to the bondage of sin. Now, now we're sons of God. And as sons, we're privileged. We're privileged to all that belongs to the Son. Get this. We're privileged to the promises of God. God now treats us as sons. This is what Jesus' prayer in John 17 was all about. Father, let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is an incomprehensible truth. That by giving ourselves to Jesus Christ in faith, God gives us everything his son possesses. By giving ourselves in faith to Jesus Christ, God gives us everything his son possesses. Meaning, God doesn't see me as the sinner I once was. He sees me as the righteous son I have become. God doesn't see me as a sinner I once was. He sees me as the righteous son I have become. When God looks at us, he sees the Lamb's coat of righteousness, not our filthy, stained sin lives. So the good news of our changed status is that we're children of God. Our status has changed from slaves to sons. This is the good news. This is the good news of sonship. The good news of being sons of God. That we've been adopted. That we are no longer slaves to sin. Sons of righteousness. That the code of Christ's righteousness has actually been placed upon us. And it has become part of us 
that our identity has now been changed. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, we're not called to keep this to ourselves. We're called to take this good news of the gospel and tell the world of God's marvelous grace in our salvation. We have been changed. We have been transformed. We have become sons of God by professing faith in Jesus Christ. And we have been given the privileges and the rights of sonship so that now we have this inheritance. We are heirs of salvation. We have this great inheritance through Christ our Lord. Salvation. No one can snatch that away. No reason to fear. We have hope in Christ alone. If that describes you this morning, praise God. If that doesn't describe you this morning, I want you to know that we want to speak with you about what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, to become an adopted son of God. If you don't know, if you don't know what it is to be a child of God, to know God intimately, to speak with him as Abba Father, we want to share what that means. And after the service this morning, there'll be someone over here on the right side of the sanctuary, my right side of the sanctuary, by the by the cross here, one of our elders, to speak with you about what it means to trust Jesus by faith, to become adopted as a son of God. In a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, coming together as a unified body. Uh, But before we do, let us pray and sing a song of response to the Lord for his goodness toward us and the good news of our salvation. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for our salvation. Thank you for redeeming us from the curse of sin. Thank you for giving us eternal life, the great inheritance. And thank you that, Jesus, you have made us righteous before the Father. Thank you, Father, that you don't look at us as the sinners we once were, but you see us for the sons of righteousness that we have become. Oh, Lord, help us to walk in that truth, to experience your nearness, your presence. Abba, Father, hear our cry this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?